Uh, good morning. Good to have you in God's house. We are studying the book of Romans. If you would uh, turn to chapter 11, uh, we're going to finish uh, chapter 11. Uh, Paul's uh, great argument in chapters 9 through 11 is God finished with Israel as a nation. The answer is no. Uh, we can now go for breakfast. We're finished. Yeah. Uh, it's been great going through this uh, portion of Scripture uh, and learning God's heartbeat for His people that He chose many, many years ago. Let's go to God in prayer this morning. Father, we uh, bow uh, humbly before You. Uh, there is no name like Your name. Uh, and uh, the name of Jesus uh, speaks of great power. Uh, Yeshua in the Old Testament uh, speaks of just the greatness. Joshua's name is, he's the great warrior God, the great God who defeats sin and evil. Uh, he's Jesus, the Greek in the New Testament, uh, the God of wisdom and power and understanding, how, how great you are. There's power in your great name. How many in our country do not understand the power of the name of Christ? Uh, we pray uh, that they would come to terms with your greatness and how much power there is in prayer when your people bow before you. We uh, thank you that that power uh, take, can take a dead sinner at the moment of conversion of great faith and grant them forgiveness and eternal life and make them a child of God. There is no power like that. Uh, there's also a power that comes from your good hand that, that brings a, a peace and consolation to those who grieve. And uh, we do pause to, to think of our fellow citizens uh, who woke up this morning thinking it was a, a bad dream and it was a reality of, of the tragedies in, uh, in El Paso uh, and in Dayton, Ohio. And we do pray for those families who lost family members, uh, that you would be their source of uh, strength uh, and endurance, uh, answers, uh, and peace in their, in their storm. And we thank you that you are more than sufficient, that when we are weak, uh, as you told Paul, uh, your grace is sufficient for us. And so that, may that be true for them this day. And we pray for our leaders, give them wisdom and knowledge, how to navigate forward, or how to best minister to our people. And we do pray for ourselves this morning that our hearts and minds might be open to what the Spirit would have to say to us as we look into your heart of your love for Israel. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, I had a Vietnam vet ask me one time uh, just about things that he had done in the jungles of Vietnam uh, as an army uh, infantryman. Uh, now he was in his late 70s and wondering, will God forgive me of those things? And he told me what they were. Will God forgive me? He, he drug those things around for, I don't know, 40 something years. Um, so I had, a, I had a great conversation with him about the grace of God, the mercy of God, uh, and uh, how that is brought to bear in tragedies like warfare. Uh, and uh, you could just see like the, the weight lifted off of his big Chicago ex-boxer body. Uh, it was like he had been freed. Uh, but it's a human tragedy, isn't it? That we get to the point sometimes when we sin and we think, truly God will never consider me as his child based on that. Or he, he will never want me in his kingdom. Or he's thrust me out of his kingdom because of what I've done or said or thought, etc. Uh, and that, that's a human condition. But, but God's greater than that. He's full of grace. He's full of mercy. Uh, and that's what Paul is going to talk about in uh, chapter uh, 11 of Romans 25 uh, to the end of the chapter. Because the Jews, uh, like uh, many of us who struggle with sin, uh, struggle with the concept that they were responsible uh, for killing the Messiah. I mean, he came to them. They had all the messianic proofs of what he would do when he came. They had all of them. They could check all the boxes. He, he did them all. And they still uh, chose not to know him, uh, embrace him as Messiah. 
and they eventually turned him over to the Roman authorities who then summarily crucified him. And so as Paul writes to the Roman church, uh, there's a Jewish contingent there that has issues, theological issues. And they struggle with several things. As we've studied uh, over the last several months, Romans 9 through 11, they, they struggle with um, justification by faith, salvation by faith, because they're built into their minds, you got to obey the Torah to be saved. And Paul's like, no, you need to follow the God who fulfilled the Torah to be saved. They struggle with that. And then they, they think that Paul is, is anti-Torah and he's, he's, he's anti the prophets. And Paul's, no, I'm, I'm, I'm pro-God and the Messiah. Let me explain him to you. And so he's been answering questions that a Jews either posed to him from this church or that he knew from being a rabbi who, who spoke in many synagogues and answered thousands of questions from Jews. Uh, he answers those questions. We've entertained eight, eight of them so far in our study of Romans 9 through 11. Uh, but it, the, the probing question of the entire section, 9 through 11 of Romans, uh, boils down to the opening question back in chapter 9 is, is very simple. Uh, has God for, finished with Israel? He's done with them in light of what they did. Is he finished with them? He's going to take that motif in chapter 9 and he's going to circle back around in a, from a rhetorical perspective. It's called inclusio. So inclusio is uh, how you began is how you end. And it's like the perfect argument. You circle back around and you finish where you started. Uh, to make sure that everybody understood exactly what your premise was. Well, his premise was a question. Has God forgotten Israel? His, his answer is no. And, and I told you, if you have been memorizing Greek along the way, <laughs> have you been? Yeah. So, well, it's test time. So Paul's answer to this is two little Greek words. Some of you wrote it in your Bible, which is okay to write in your Bible, you know. What is it? Me genoito. So me is the Greek negative for no. Genoito is no way. You know, there's no way that's going to happen. And so uh, that's why it could be a short sermon. As I've told you all through this section, Paul keeps saying, Meganoito, no way. And I've told you it could be a short sermon, but it can't be because I'm paid to exegete scripture. <laughs> so I, I don't apologize. Uh, but uh, Paul's going to circle back around in inclusio, rhetorical format. He's like an attorney arguing a case. And he's going to pose that question again that he started with. And that we're going to rephrase the question uh, because predictability breeds boredom, does it not? You're already bored? Yeah. So let's rephrase the question and put it this way. Does Israel's sinful rejection of the Messiah, the Messiah, the, the Christos, the anointed one, lead to divine ejection? I mean, ejection from his kingdom program for them. Does it? Answer in Greek? Meganoitio. Thank you. Amen. We're, we're done. Um, but it's bigger than that. Because Paul wants to make sure that the Jews understand the grace of God uh, for Jew and for Gentile, because sometimes we forget that because of sin that we've committed. There's an old uh, hymn. Uh, I grew up singing it. Uh, I love to play it on the piano when I'm at home. I have a Yamaha, like a baby grand, but it's an upright baby grand. I play at home. Um, it's like worship between me and God, but, but I like uh, grace greater than our sin. Here's the lyrics. Marvelous, marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount it was outpoured. There where the blood of the lamb was spilt. Then the refrain is grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within the soul. Nothing else can do that. Uh, grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all of our sin. That's, that's a song that Paul, had it been written back then, could have sang over the Jews. You know, God's grace is greater than your sin. And so he's going to give them the answer that God isn't finished with them. And so his answer is God will, will, at the end of the day, at the end of time, God will get the glory for showing mercy to Israel. To the church, God will get glory. But to his original chosen people, Israel. He's going to get the glory. 
Now to the non-Christian who doesn't understand that, who's skeptical, analytical, critical of everything that a pastor would say, you're going to say things like this because I've heard them. Plus I used to be a non-Christian. Um, God is so e egotistical. He wants glory. He's a narcissist. What's his problem? Is God narcissistic? No. Is he egotistical? No. In fact, if you read uh, Proverbs chapter 6, uh, and you read the seven deadly, the seven major sins. Uh, there are six things the Lord hates. Ye seven are an abomination to him. Two are pride. God is not about pride. He's about humility. But, but, but God wants to get the glory from us because we're his creation. I mean, Jesus himself said, if the people don't praise me, the rocks will cry out. He's a creator. And so you have to stop and ask yourself, does my life give God glory? And we're going to talk about that as we move along. Does my life give glory? Do I stop and give God verbal glory for what he's given unto me? Uh, and Paul says, let's, let's talk about, at the end of the day, God wants to get glory in, in that he's going to redeem Israel. He's not finished with them. And he, like an attorney, is going to use a threefold argument to prove his case as he closes it out. It's going to build to a crescendo. So if you're a pianist and you see a crescendo, what are you supposed to do? You watch. This service will have no pianist in it. So play louder. Pianissimo. A little softer. Etc. Uh, and so this is a crescendo. This is, we're building to a climax. Uh, and so he, he's going to tell you, let me in a pedantic way show you my, my premise. And the premise is uh, Israel will be saved in the future. That's his opening premise. And he'll support that with two other subpoints. Read what he says. Verse, that was my intro. We're into verse 25. Uh, he says, For I do not want you, brethren, Jews and Gentiles in the Roman church, to be uninformed of this mystery. And we'll just stop right there and make a quick analysis. I don't know, if you're new here, I preach from the New American Standard Bible. I don't know what you have. You have King James, NIV, Living Bible, something else. I'll pray for you. I don't, I'm not using that translation. So you're like, that's not what mine says. So you have another word there if you have another translation, don't you? So, so what's it say? Ignorant. ignorant. Yeah, ignorant. Ignorant. Uh, and the, 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 what happens in Greek when you learn Greek um, is if you take the first letter of the Greek alphabet, uh, alpha, uh, and, you, and you wed it to a, a verb, it negates the meaning of that. So you could take any, any verb and put alpha in front of it. And it's called an alpha privative from a grammatical perspective. And it negates it. So here you have the word uh, uh, gnosis or knowledge. And you put uh, alpha in front of it. It means no knowledge. Or your translation, ignorant. Anybody else have that translation? Yeah, that's actually the better translation. Because the New American Standard says uninformed. Which is kind of like ignorant. But we're talking ignorant as no knowledge whatsoever. And, and Paul says, there's a mystery I want to explain to you. But before he gets into the mystery about the plan of God, you see the, up there on the screen, there's a line after the word uh, uh, mystery. That's a parenthetical statement. Because Paul, like some speakers, not me, but went off on a rabbit trail. <laughs> you know, yeah. At least I know when I'm on one and I come back. But he... <laughs> Or I don't, I don't, I don't realize it. Um, so, you know, so Paul goes off on this quick rabbit trail. He goes, you know, I'm going to talk to you about the mystery of the plan of God. But by the way, uh, I need to do this in the so that clause states the reason why he's going to tell you this. So that you as a saved Jew or Gentile uh, will not be what? Wise in your own estimation. That is a really nice way of saying so you will not be arrogant and cocky and thinking you got the corner on everything that God's doing and that he's done with Israel. I don't want you thinking that you're right about that. And then he jumps back into what he says. Let's talk about the mystery. He says, what is the mystery? The mystery is that there's a partial hardening has happened to Israel, the nation, not the church. He's talking to Israel, 
Remember, there's a great hermeneutical principle. Hermeneutics is a study of Bible study methods. What principles do you use to study Bible study methods? So I studied them for eight years in college and grad school, hermeneutical principles. I could have saved myself a ton of money if I had just gone to this one principle. If the plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense. Did you hear me? If the plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense. What does that mean? Well, when I read what I read and I see what the words say, that's what they say. So if it says Israel, who's he talking about? Israel. Israel. I don't stick the word church in there. He's not talking about the ecclesia of the church. He's talking about Israel. The whole three chapters he's been talking about Israel, the nation. So he's saying, don't stick the church in here. He said, I'm talking about the salvation of Israel, the nation prophesied in the Old Testament, as he's going to show you. He says, I'm going to show you this mystery. And he says, it's a partial hardening. It's not a full hardening. It's a partial hardening. They are hardened now because for years and years they rejected the prophets and God continually hardened them, which we told you uh, the whole hardening concept from the Greek wording uh, denotes a callous. So the more you reject God, the more callous you become toward him so you can do unimaginable things and thinking you're doing God a favor. It's a callous nature of sin, which by the way, as a side note, the power of God can, can well, get rid of your spiritual callous and give you a soft heart. But he, but he says that this is a partial hardening. This happened to Israel uh, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Now, what is so cool here, it may not be cool to you, but as a former person studying to be a Greek professor, as I was many years ago, um, I like prepositions, don't you? I love them. Nobody loves prepositions. This is the time when you really want to fall in love with prepositions. How many don't love prepositions? Mm-hmm. Okay, we're going to pray. So, what's he say here? The, this mystery is coming. Uh, Israel is going to get saved, but this isn't going to happen until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Preposition is until. It's until. Uh, he's telling you, this is the chronological thing. When this event happens, then the next event chronologically is Israel as a nation gets saved. That preposition is huge. There was a, a young guy walking by my house the other day. He was getting ready to go to the beach with his family for a week, and uh, he, he had his girlfriend with him. I'd, I'd never met her. She had her dog. I'd never met the dog. And, you know, I'm doing something in my yard. It's hard for me to work in my front yard because I end up talking to everybody as they're walking by, you know. But, so I'm working, and, and they went walking by. And so I, he said hi to me. I said hi to him. And so I started talking to her. And um, I met her, and, and I said, oh, beautiful little kind of Eskimo little white dog. You know, what, what's the dog's name? She said, uh, the dog's name is Kai. I go, oh, that's, that's cool. I said, did you know that's a Greek word? Uh, no, I just like the way it sounds. I said, well, it's a coordinating conjunction. <laughs> I don't know if she'll ever talk to me again ruin that relationship I'm just saying you know after six years of Greek I, I gotta use it somewhere you know uh, but anyway back to my sermon uh, yeah that dog's probably freaking out now I'm a conjunction anyway um, so he says this great thing for Israel is not gonna happen until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in now what's interesting is the verb has come in that one word in Greek uh, here's how it's best defined and John MacArthur out in Panorama City is right on target when he says this about that verb has come in he says has come in this verb is a verb Jesus frequently used you got to ask yourself in what context did he use it uh, he said he used it in, of entering the kingdom of heaven or entering the kingdom of God and he used it of gaining eternal life like in Mark chapter 9 verse 43 to 45 both of which refer to receiving salvation then he makes a summation based on that Israel's unbelief will then last only until the complete number of Gentiles chosen by God have come to salvation. 
Let's go back and read it. Israel's partial hardening has happened to them until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Translated into lay terms, when the last Gentile comes to the Messiah, the end of that dealing with the church is done. God then begins to deal with who? Israel. When's he deal with them? In the tribulation. Just go read Daniel 9, 24 to 27. God says, uh, I'm not done with my people. Remember book of Daniel? We spent several years studying it. <laughs> Remember that? It was an awesome study. At least I thought it was. Uh, thanks for supporting me in that. But um, <laughs> just to recap like what went on in the, in the book of uh, Daniel. Yeah, I, I, what would a sermon be on eschatology, study of the end time, eschaton, the Greek word for end? Uh, what would a sermon be of this nature without a chart? You know what I mean? We are in D.C. We thrive on charts, do we not? So nothing better than to show you a chart and you're going to go, oh, I totally understand what Paul's talking about. Okay, so here's a chart. Okay, we're moving to the next thing now. Are, are, have you got it? So here, here's, I'm going to summarize what Paul's talking about. He's talking about chronology. So when the last Gentile saved, Messiah starts dealing with Israel in the 70th week, the last seven-year cycles of judgment to deal with Israel. Um, which means, what are you waiting for in witnessing to people? I'm saying, think about it. You could lead the last person to Christ that triggers the kingdom process starting to come majorly. You know what I'm saying? So why you shouldn't be yawning about your faith. You should be sharing your faith. I was on the Temple Mount one day uh, with one of my tours, and I've been up there many times. I've gone to the Wailing Wall. You know, you walk past the curtain. You walk up to the wall. It's a very holy, sacred place. You, you pray there. You know, you're with usually a lot of ultra-Orthodox uh, rabbi kind of people up there. Uh, and, you know, I kind of feel out of place as, a, as a, one of the goyim, the goys, the Gentiles. But I go up there and, and I pray. And as I was backing up, and there's lots of people, so you don't want to run into somebody, but you want to show disrespect. So I'm backing up. And, and this Jewish guy, this ultra-Orthodox guy comes up to me, you know, with the, the curls and the hat and everything. And he comes up to me and he goes, uh, are you Jewish? I'm, number one, you're not supposed to talk here. So I'm like, why are you talking to me? He goes, are you Jewish? I go, well, I don't, do I look Jewish? You know, uh, you know, my wife is Jewish ancestry, but not me. And he goes, oh, good. And he walks away. And I'm like, oh, that was really weird. You know, because no one ever talks to you there. It's a place of prayer. And so I went to my, my guide, and I, Asher Ashkenazi, and I said, hey, Asher, that was kind of a weird experience, you know? I said, what's up with that? What's up with that guy? Uh, and he said, well, they believe that, he said, they're super passionate. They believe that when they, can, they get the last Jew to buy into their version of Judaism, the, the Messiah, the anointed one, appears. And he's so committed to that viewpoint, he's going around to all the people at the Wailing Wall asking them, are you the Jew? And do you follow uh, you know, you know, the Torah, blah, blah, blah. And if you don't, let me help you. Because they are, could you imagine? Now, uh, the way I look at it, he was right to a point, wasn't he? He just got the people wrong. See, God, Paul's saying, no, it's the Gentile that's going to get saved. Then God goes to the, to, the, to the Jew. He's thinking it's the Jew, then the Messiah comes. Um, this is what Paul's saying, but just the passion of the guy. So Paul says, uh, God is not done with, done with, uh, done with Israel. Uh, he, he's going to save Israel. Notice the chart. So think about the chart. Uh, the Old Testament age is over because Jesus fulfilled the Torah. He lived a perfect life. He bore our sin. He rose the third day. He defeated sin and death. He closed out the Mosaic age or that what we would call dispensation. And then now we are in what is called the, the church age uh, where you come to Christ freely. Uh, by grace, and he saves you when you confess him as Lord. Uh, how long has that been going on? 
Well over 2,000 years. But it can, it can end imminently because Christ's return is imminent. I mean, nothing else has to happen for him to appear. Now, from my understanding of eschatology, you, you may hold another view. I'll pray for you. But <laughs> my understanding of eschatology that I've studied all my life, and, and I was a premillennialist, and I was a dispensationalist, and I was, you know, that kind of guy before I even knew what the terms were. And, and so from my understanding of what's going to happen next is the rapture of the church of Christ. Because the tribulation is all about the time of Jacob's trouble. See, if the first uh, 69 weeks of Daniel, or 483 years from Daniel 9, 24 to 27, if the last course of world empire dealt with Israel, the four, 483 years, ipso facto, the last seven years have to deal with Israel. And that's why Jesus talks about in his Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 to 25, he's going to come back and deal with Israel. Why? Because he's got to save them. So in the tribulation starts with 144,000 Jews, once the church is out of here, getting sealed by God himself. I mean, and I think the seal is visible so the Antichrist can see these Jews. They belong to the Messiah. But if you read Revelation, and by the way, that's the most requested book that I'm asked to preach on. You, do you realize we would never get out of it? <laughs> I don't know. I was, I was 25 years old and I'm 40 and he's still, he's in chapter five. You know, <laughs> Uh, but but we, we may eventually study it because I've been throwing it around with staff like when I would do it. So we're actually talking about how would we do this? It would, would you be for it? Or? Yeah. Oh, you would? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. I'll be in some senior citizen home still doing it, you know. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so he starts the tribulation, chapter 7 of Revelation, uh, with the ceiling of 144,000 Jews. 12,000 from each tribe. They're invincible. How do I know that? I read Revelation. Because when you get to the end of the Revelation and you read a parenthetical section of Revelation, i.e. chapter 14, you see that the 144,000 toward the end of the tribulation are still there. And it gives you their number, meaning they didn't lose any, which means this, the Antichrist can't kill them. Could you imagine 144,000 Jews who come to the Messiah in faith and they can't be killed? Witnessing for Jesus in the tribulation when Satan wants you to worship the satanic trinity? Could you imagine the irony of that? Can you imagine how frustrated the devil is going to be? It's a whole other sermon. But they, they, they start out the tribulation sharing Jesus with the world. And then in the, not long after them are two witnesses that rise up. Like in the power of like Elijah and like Moses. And they, they speak with great power. And the world hates them and tries to stop their voice. And eventually God gives them the ability to kill those two witnesses. And then it says when the entire world can see they finally silence the Christian voice, they're resurrected. And they float up into heaven. Don't you want to see that? I mean, talk about awesome. You look as excited as I do. I mean, that's amazing. But then when you get to the end of the tribulation, after all the 21 judgments run their course, when you get to the end, whatever your theological position is, if you're pre-mill, mill whatever, it's the second coming of God Almighty. Jesus appears. It says in Matthew 24, he comes with the clouds of great glory, great brightness when he breaks into the darkness. And I'm, I'm going somewhere with this. <laughs> because when he breaks through, and if you read the Old Testament, he comes down to ancient Basra, down in the Sinai, uh, not Sinai, uh, down near, uh, near Elat, near the Red Sea. He comes down there, and I've been down there. There's nothing out there. He comes there first, and he works his way up the Jordan Rift Valley. And he, according to Zechariah chapter 14, he, his feet touch upon the Mount of Olives, and it cleaves in two. And a massive valley forms and water begins to gush out. And he takes on the forces of wicked, the wicked, the evil. But when this happens is when Israel gets saved as a nation. 
national salvation. This is what the scriptures clearly teach. Uh, as he's quoting here, all Israel will be saved just as it is written. And he quotes from Isaiah chapter 59, uh, verses uh, 20 and 21. What, what did he say? Well, the deliverer, i.e. Jesus, will come from Zion and he will remove the ungodliness from Jacob. Translated, he's going to save Jacob, Israel. Now, how do we know he's going to do that? Well, he just prophesied he would. And then he tells you that he does in Zechariah chapter 12. Notice what he says in Zechariah 12. Chronologically speaking, it says, when the Jews see Jesus descending, it says in verse 10, he, God says, I will pour out on, on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of mercy and supplication, so that when they look on him whom they have thrust through, or your translation may read pierced, uh, they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child that you lost. You know what I mean? I mean, ever grieve like that over a loved one who died? I mean, like I've told Liz, it's like grief from your bones. It's hard, to, it's hard to imagine. He says, they will grieve like one who grieves over a firstborn that passed away. They will see Jesus and realize he was the Messiah. And they will see their sin and they will fall at his feet. And they as a nation, not every single one of them because they won't, they have a free will. But by and large, the nation will come to know the Messiah. It says in uh, Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1, Chronologically speaking, on that day, a fountain will be opened up for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem for one reason. What does he say? Well, it's, it's to purify them from sin and uncleanness. Because from the very beginning of their founding as a nation to the end, they have rejected the ways of God. Just read the prophets. God said A, they said B. Uh, God said, wait for Moses to come down from the mount with the tablets. And they said, that old man must have died up there. Uh, I think we need, need to make our own calf from the very beginning. God says, I'm going to drive that from you uh, and I'm going to save you as a nation. It's prophesied all throughout the Old Testament. Is God done with Israel? Paul says, no. The plan is the deliverer Jesus will save them at the end of the tribulation. Won't that be a great day? And that, that leads then to a whole nother discussion. The kingdom of God then begins. That's even, that's awesome. But that's chronology. Number two, Paul says, there's a great plan of God uh, in addition to his precise uh, movings to redeem Israel, there's a precise plan of God to demonstrate mercy. He wants to show his mercy to the Jew and to the Gentile. This is verses uh, 30, uh, 28 to 32. Paul says, uh, and this is full of ir irony when you read this, about the ways of God. He says, in respect to the gospel, they, the Jews, are enemies on your account. But in respect to the election, because God chose them in Deuteronomy 7 to be his people, they are beloved because of the patriarchs. Then he says, for the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. He called them as his people. Paul says, he's not going to change his mind. You think God looks at them as a people and says, that was a huge mistake. See, I mean, think about this. Apply it to your own salvation. Uh, go back up to Romans uh, 10, 9, and 10. What, is it, what does that say? You got a Bible? What's it say? Do you have a Bible? What did Paul, what did Paul say back up there? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you might be saved. <laughs> oh no, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses uh, and is saved. You know what? The minute you confess Jesus as Lord, I mean, we're talking deity God who died for you and rose again. You as a sinner believe that to be true for yourself. You are saved for all eternity. You're his child. He will never look down at you as his child and go, Boy, what do you think, angels? That was a really bad choice on that one, huh? No, no. He will not revoke you. 
Now, you, he may have to deal with you because you have times of drifting, but he will still love you. And this is what he says to Israel. He wants to show mercy to them. He will not take his gift of the covenants and given to the patriarchs and re renege on them. He says, just as you once disobeyed, but God now, but, but disobey God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. So now they have disobeyed in order that by virtue of the mercy shown to you, they too may now receive mercy. For God delivered all, Jew and Gentile, to disobedience because of Edemic sin, that he might have mercy upon all of us. What's God want to show most all of all things in all the world? His mercy. To who? Sinners who repented of their sin. Mercy. See, they started out as God people. Then they pushed back against God. And for hundreds and hundreds of years, he tried to woo them back, but they wouldn't listen to the prophets. So then they killed the Messiah. So then he went to the Gentiles and the Jews to form the mystery of the church. And then eventually he saves the last Gentile and then goes back to dealing with Israel. Who can figure out the ways of God? I mean, you probably live long enough to know that as you start looking at your life, things that you thought were mysterious that happened to you, as you get older, you start connecting the dots. Hmm, now I know why I moved there. Now I know why I, you know, met her, et cetera, et cetera. All those things start making sense. Paul says, this is all about God showing mercy to sinners. Mercy. There's an old uh, hymn called Out Calvary, which talks about mercy. Years I spent in vanity and pride, not caring that my Lord was crucified, knowing not it was for me that he died on Calvary. When I was a non-Christian, I didn't get that. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty. Where? Calvary. He says, one day the nation Israel will understand the mercy of God and he will save them. He will save them. That, that really leads to me just asking you a question uh, as a sinner, whether you're Jew or Gentile. Do you know the mercy of Christ? He's in the business of redeeming sinners. But he's going to save his nation. Paul is so excited about what he hears from his premise, from the plan of God to show his mercy. He breaks into praise. Have you ever been like so overcome with your Bible reading in the morning, uh, a song that you're hearing, minister to your soul, that you just, you just break into just praise of God? I mean, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, maybe you don't know him. Because when you do that, it's just coming from your soul to him. It's, it's called a doxology. Doxa in Greek is a word for glory. It's just giving God glory. Paul says, I got to give glory to God when I see that he's going to redeem Israel. Notice what he says. Oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Exclamation point. How inscrutable are his judgments and how unsearchable are his ways. He says, when I, when I think about God, there's no limit to his wisdom. He knows all things. What is wisdom? It's the ability to look at situations and know wisely how to act and make decisions in said situation. Knowledge is I have a uh, knowledge of what needs to happen and I can use wisdom to get there. Do you think ever, God ever has an angel come up to him and say, man, Lord, that was not wise what you just did right there. <laughs> Do you think that ever happens? That, that angel's not an angel anymore. He's gone to the dark side, you know? No, no. Do you think an angel ever comes to God and go, you know, I don't think you had all the facts on that one, God. No, that never happens. Paul says his knowledge of how to orchestrate his will is beyond comprehension. Wisdom. When you think about that, it's like, why do I worry then when I watch God working in my life? Why do I get anxious? Well, I'm mortal. But as a believer, I have to stop and think about the greatness of God. He says in verse 34, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? These are two rhetorical questions demanding not a yes for an answer, but a no. Who has known the mind of God? Anybody? Nobody. Has anybody been God's counselor? No. He doesn't need counseling. Why? 
He's got no issues. <laughs> he knows everything. Who has known his mind? I'll put it to you this way. Paul's talked in this book, especially chapter 9, or in chapter 8, about doc, the doctrine of election, predestination, and free will. Does anybody here know how to figure that out? Does anybody go, hey, I totally figured it out? No, you haven't. If you tell me you have, you have, there's no way. Because it's, 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 the thinking's too complex and too great for finite minds. I mean, you can kind of come to a conclusion, but you're never going to figure out, does he elect people? People ask me all, all the time, do you believe in election? Mm -hmm. Do you believe in predestination? Yeah, yeah. Do you believe in free will? Sure. And whenever I come to those passages, I just talk about those things. <laughs> but how do they all fit together? Beyond my pay grade. I mean, I understand it to a point, but then God's greater than me. So God's ways are beyond us, and this is what he says. Who's known the mind of the Lord? I mean, we can't even figure out predestination, election, and free will. But here's, here's the thing, and I, and I said this like, last week. I'll say it again. Whatever is going on in the complexities of life, he's got it because of who he is. He says in verse 11, notice the preposition he's, he, he closes out with here. For from him and through him and for him, Jesus, or what? All things. I mean, I sat through a whole lot of classes studying science with uh, atheistic evolutionists. Uh, we don't really know why we're here. We're just an accident. We're a result of an explosion. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, they don't know why we're here. I know why we're here. What did Paul just say why we're here? Well, we're here for one reason, for him. And what are we supposed to do? Give him glory. Give him glory. I'll leave you with this. His reasons, God's reasons, and his methods of operations are far beyond anything we as a finite creature can ever understand. But his methods and his reasons are the best. They always are, no matter what. And to that we would say, amen. Let's pray. Father God, we pause to give you doxa, glory. Uh, we extol you for who you are, and we submit ourselves to your leadership, personally, uh, corporately as a church, uh, our lives are in your hands and you do what you see needs to be done. May we walk closely with you and follow you and not grumble like ancient Israel did along the way, but trust you that your ways are beyond our ways. Your thoughts are beyond our thoughts. And ultimately at the end of the day, uh, you call us to be obedient unto you and to give you glory and to recognize your greatness. We thank you for who you are in Jesus' name.